0: Good morning to you. Welcome to Grace. I'm Steve, one of the retired guys around here. And I thank you for the special dispensation of taking this pulpit out of mothballs so I could use it today. I feel like that's where I'm coming out of too. It's, it's really good to be, though retired, still part of this family and occasionally to pinch hit for Pastor Jack. And... Uh, I'm so grateful for his servant-hearted leadership and uh, for his diligent ministry of the word. I'm sure you appreciate it also, appreciate him. So I'm just grateful. Uh, God willing, I am pinch-hitting two Sundays in a row, this being the first one. So if you don't care for, no. (laughs) I I thought of this story uh, as I was waiting, and I'm going to just tell it to you as a way of introduction. So I grew up in Japan. My parents were missionaries. We'd go on vacation in the early years from where we lived in Osaka to the mountains of Karuizawa by train. And the last little bit up the pass, there was a steam locomotive that took us up the mountain. If, you know, if you've ever been on a locomotive, you know they start really slow. And then they move and the doors are open and my dad would get off at a station on the way and get something, buy something, maybe lunch or something. And the train would start to move and he wasn't back on the train. And he knew, you know, it starts really slow and he could just like get on really quick. And that's what he did. But I remember being so anxious and afraid that my dad wouldn't join us and that we'd be on that train alone and then the thought that came to me as i'm thinking about what i'm going to share this morning is some of us feel like god has left the train and it's going on without him and we're feeling that anxiety that we don't know where he is and i'd like to share this morning about misperceiving god the struggle to find our way into the security of his love that's my topic so uh Several years ago when I was on staff, I visited a sister in this church in the hospital. She was elderly. And uh, she was very ready to go home and be with Jesus. But Jesus wasn't giving her that release. And so she had to live day after day with a lot of weakness and a lot of anxiety. And she said to me, Pastor Steve, I pray every single day for the Lord to take me home, but he doesn't. I said, uh, what what are some of your favorite songs? And she said, without blinking, Jesus loves me. And so instead of talking to her about this, I just started singing to her. Jesus loves me. And then she started mouthing the words with me, and pretty soon she was singing along with me. It was so sweet. It was, because it was obvious that she knew and loved the song and the truth in the song, but it was also clear that at the same time her heart was full of anxiety and pain. And I'm thinking, how does that work? We believe that Jesus loves us. We can sing about that love. But sensing His love and perceiving His presence when we don't understand what's going on around us, that's a totally different thing. Fifteen years ago, there's an author named Wayne Jacobson, a Christian, who wrote a wonderful book. It's called, He Loves Me, Learning to Live in the Father's Affection. And Jacobson wrote this in his book. Certainly there is nothing more theologically certain than that God is love. We sing about his love in our simplest songs. We're comfortable with using the language of love as it relates to God. But in a practical sense, and this is what drew my attention, incredibly few believers live each day as if the God of the universe has great affection for them. Does that ring true for you? We believe that God loves us, but often we don't experience living love by Jesus. And I'm wondering why this is. And I think of my own life, and I think it's so easy to interpret our pain, our hurts, our struggles, and the suffering we go through as proof that God doesn't care. Even when he does, and he's told us that he does, and maybe we do this because our faith hasn't matured or we're in a relationship with God basically because we think it'll make our lives easier, and then it doesn't. Or we're in a relationship with God to, for Him to provide what we want, and we depend on Him to steer us clear of all these painful experiences. Isn't that what God is for? And when that doesn't happen, we dip into disappointment and anger and fear, even hopeless despair. We begin to question God's heart and give up on his love. And uh, we get stuck in what Jacobson calls daisy-petal Christianity. You know, picking petals, he loves me, he loves me not. Yeah, we don't pick real flower petals, but we examine our circumstances and then we draw conclusions about how we think God feels about us. I got a raise. He loves me. I lost my job. He loves me not. The report came back negative. He loves me. My child has cancer. He loves me not. You see how it goes? Depending on the circumstances we're in, we draw different conclusions about God's heart. And some of us may know that CNN's founder many years ago, Ted Turner, was a professing believer planning to be a missionary when he was a teenager. That was in the early 50s. But he had a younger sister named Mary Jane who contracted a painful autoimmune disease. And Ted would come home and hold her hand trying to comfort her in her misery. She was in terrible shape. He prayed for her recovery. She prayed that she would die. After years of agony, Mary Jane lost the battle with her disease. And Ted lost his faith. He said, I was taught that God was love. And that God was powerful. And I couldn't understand why he would allow someone so innocent to be made to suffer so. Some of us are identifying with that. Maybe we're here this morning filled with sadness and grief and bitter disappointment. Like we're almost on the point of giving up on God. Life is hurting too much. Maybe we're struggling with depression. Maybe we're wondering why God is allowing so much pain into my life. It's easy to misperceive his heart when we look at our circumstances. There's a Christian counselor named David Tackle, whose material I've used a lot. He said once, children are good observers. They notice everything, but they're poor interpreters. They will perceive stressful and painful circumstances. Mommy and daddy are getting a divorce, but they'll not understand the real explanation. They think it's their fault. We're like that too when we try to make sense of our lives we come up with totally outrageous conclusions about what's actually true about God or about ourselves or about our circumstances. There's a pastor named Mark Batterson who, who leads the, who's the lead pastor of the National Community Church in Washington, D.C. And years ago, he wrote a book called In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. And if you know anything about the life of David, that comes from 2 Samuel. And he's writing about our tendency to draw these false conclusions about God. He illustrates it this way. He says, okay, you're at a restaurant waiting for your date. And you were supposed to meet at 7 o'clock sharp. But 45 minutes later, your date is a no-show. 45 minutes. Well... At some point, you need to explain to yourself why this is happening. You might think to yourself, he stood me up. That would make you feel mad. Or you might jump to a conclusion. She doesn't love me anymore, making you sad. You could think, he was in an accident, causing you to feel anxiety. Or you might think, she's working overtime so she can pay for our meal." causing you to feel grateful, (laughs) naive, but grateful. (laughs) You might think she's with another man, causing you to feel jealous. Or you might think "This this gives me a perfect opportunity to break up with him, causing you to feel relieved. So how we respond to adversity, how we process our distress, how we perceive the love of Jesus in the middle of our pain will make all the difference in the world in our journey of faith. Yes, it will. I'm amazed how easy it is for me to accept good from God, but to struggle under adversity, right? In our pain, some of us may take the rebellion route we get angry, we feel sorry for ourselves, we pull away from God. If that's the way you're going to treat me, I'm done with you. I'm not talking to you. I had a conversation with someone recently. I have not talked to God in three months. I am so mad. Some of us may take the religious, religion route, and that is in our fear based connection with God. We think we need to try harder to live a life that will merit His love and help us stay on His good side. Try harder. Row harder. But these kind of responses don't lead to a secure love attachment at all with the Lord. They only produce confusion and despair. You know, in our relating to God, we can kind of become something like a a schizophrenic child of an abusive alcoholic parent. We're never certain what God we're gonna meet on any given day. A God who'll scoop us up in his arms with laughter or one who will ignore us or punish us for no understandable reason. That's a hard way to live. Some of us today are probably carrying scars and disappointments because we have convincing evidence we think that the God of love doesn't exist. And if he does, he doesn't want to. Main, he doesn't want us close. He wants to maintain a distance, a safe distance, keep us at arm's length, and leave us to the whims of other people's sins. Well, it's my conviction this morning that what I feel about God is not often true about God. Our perceptions are not reality. And if we persist in defining God only in our limited interpretation of our own circumstances, we'll never discover who He really is. Which is why He gave us His Word to tell us what He's really like and then to encourage us on our journey to connect with His heart of love. And because it's so easy to misperceive God and struggle to find our way into the security of His love, I want us to look together this morning at two contrasting snapshots from the life of the Old Testament patriarch. His name is Jacob. In the first snapshot, located at the end of Genesis chapter 37, we find Jacob at one of the lowest emotional points in his entire life. Where is he? He's living and settled in the town of Hebron, and he's just welcomed home his 10 oldest sons back from an extended trip north to pasture flocks in a town of Shechem. It's about 50 miles away from where he lives. Well, for whatever reason, Jacob had not sent his favorite son, 17 year old Joseph, along on this venture with his older brothers. He chose to keep him behind with his younger brother, Benjamin. As you know, Joseph and Benjamin were the two sons of Jacob's beloved and late wife, Rachel. So, several weeks after sending his older 10 sons away to pasture, to find pasture, Jacob is worried about their welfare. His boys did some damage in Shechem several years ago. So he decides to, he changes his mind, decides to send Joseph alone to check up on his older brothers. And when the brothers spot Joseph whom they hate because daddy is, he's daddy's favorite, they begin to plot murder. You know the story if you've read Genesis 37. Well, anticipating their daddy's grief, Reuben, the oldest, objects to the plan to kill him. So eventually Joseph's siblings end up just just selling him callously to traders as a slave and they take him to Egypt. And to cover their crime, they take Joseph's coat from him, the special gift that signifies daddy's favor and love, and they dip it in the blood of a goat they kill, and they make it look like Joseph's been slaughtered by a savage animal, and they take that bloody coat and stick it in one of their bags and head home to Hebron. So eventually... They roll back into town, and here's the scene. Children come running, wives come out of tents. Little Benjamin shows up in the arms of Jacob, who's 108 years old. Everybody's greeting each other warmly. Jacob says, welcome home, boys. And then he gets this worried look on his face as he scans the, the group for his favorite son, And then he asks, oh, where's Joseph? They go, what do you mean, where's Joseph? Oh, I sent him to you several weeks ago with some supplies. What, you sent him to us? We never saw him. They lie with bold faces and Jacob begins to tremble. And then they pull out the bag, but on our way home, we found this. One of the brothers pulls this torn blood covered coat from the bag and holds it up to dad we found this and wondered uh, do you have any idea who this might be jacob tastes an incredible bitter grief at this point he falls into despair seeing and fingering the bloody garment of his favorite son jacob tastes the worst hopelessness anybody's ever tasted this grief overwhelms him he looks at his circumstances staring him in the face, and he draws two conclusions that he believes are true, one about Joseph and one about himself. So let's look at the text, Genesis 37, 33 to 35. And he, Jacob, identified it and said, This is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. And then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. And thus his father wept for him. Jacob looks at his circumstances and makes some big evaluations. And looking at the evidence, he concludes that Joseph has died a horrible death. And this feels true. It looks true. Though in reality, that's not the case. Jacob is falling for this cruel hoax pulled on him by his own sons. Now we know that Joseph is alive in Egypt. We know that, but Jacob doesn't know that. So tragically, Jacob plunges into grief and mourns for years based on this faulty conclusion. Joseph is dead. And that's how he lives. Wow. But not only does Jacob conclude that his circumstances point to the loss of his son, he also draws a conclusion about his own future. In his grief, Jacob believes that he's doomed to spend the rest of his life in hopeless despair. He says, Surely I will go down to the grave in mourning for my son. What is he saying? He's saying, there is no hope for me. I'll wake up and I'll go to bed in sadness and sorrow every single day for the rest of my life. Jacob didn't say it, but I'm sure he felt it. God has abandoned me. So that could be where some of us are this morning, in the same dark valley of grief and despair that Jacob went through. And though God is present and we believe that we don't feel him. And though he loves us, we can't understand why is our marriage in such pain? Why are our kids struggling so? Maybe we failed in a business adventure. Maybe we're struggling with unfulfilled dreams and desires. Maybe we're feeling overwhelmed with responsibilities at home or at work. And what do we conclude? this is hopeless things will never change i will never get better god has abandoned me that's jacob these conclusions seem so true when they're really not you see learning to walk with jesus takes us into some scary emotional territory territory now in the old testament book of samuel second samuel chapter 23 Uh, There's a story about King David's mighty men, and one of them is named Benaiah. He's the one that this title, Mark Batterson's book, is about. He's the one that went down and killed the lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. Verse 23 tells us that David subsequently promotes Benaiah and puts him in charge of his bodyguards. And this is how Mark Batterson describes it. He says, I can't think of too many places I'd rather not be than in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. That's not on anybody's wish list. That's a death wish. But you've got to admit something. I killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day looks pretty impressive on your resume. <laughs> if you're applying for the chief bodyguard position in David's court. Um, I can picture David flipping through a stack of resumes. Well, I majored in security at the University of Jerusalem. Nope. I did an internship with the palace guard. Nada. I worked for Brink's armored chariots. No, thanks, but no thanks. Then David comes to the next resume in the stack. I killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. This is our man. That's it. That's the kind of person we need in charge of bodyguards. Lion chasers make great bouncers. He's David's man. Now take a look at the story through a wide-angled lens, Batterson writes. Most people would have seen the lion as a 500-pound problem, but not Beniah. For most people, finding yourself in a pit with a lion on a snowy day will qualify as hard luck, bad luck. But can you see how God turned a bad break into a big break? Benaiah lands a job interview with the king of Israel. And then Batterson concludes this way. Here's the point. God is in the resume building business. He's always using past experiences to prepare us for future opportunities. But those God-given opportunities often come disguised as man-eating lions. And how we react when we encounter those lions will determine our destiny. So the irony of Jacob's pain is that contrary to what he's concluded, his son is alive in Egypt. After 13 years of slavery and imprisonment, the favorite son of Jacob becomes the favorite son of Egypt. Promoted by God's amazing power to the position of second in command under Pharaoh. And what is God doing? His big picture plan, unknown to Jacob at first, was to save his people from starvation by death, to preserve a nation. And though accomplishing that goal included painful circumstances for both Jacob and Joseph, in all of this, was not God's heart loving and good? And the answer is yes. Now, if you're here today struggling to perceive this love and the power of Jesus because the circumstances in your life are tough, you're in good company. Think about Job and all that he lost. He lost his entire portfolio in a day. Then his 10 young adult kids died suddenly and tragically. And then he was struck with sudden debilitating Deterioration of his health. And though at first Job is resolute in his desire to honor God even in adversity, eventually his pain and the rejection of his friends bring him to the point of despair. And Job begins hating his life and he even accuses God of attacking him mercilessly for no reason. Stop it. Think of Jesus' disciples on the Sea of Galilee in the boat with him, when a major life-threatening storm whips up huge waves and stirs up raw fear in their hearts. And they panic in the presence of Jesus and they are unaware of his concern or his power and their circumstances seem overwhelming and life-threatening. Now that's not the end of the story. But think of the grief of seeing your Lord and Savior bleeding and broken, hanging on a cross. Recall the story of the two disciples who were headed home three days later on Resurrection Sunday. They don't know it's Resurrection Sunday. But they're grieving the loss of their hopes for deliverance. And in an irony of ironies, guess what? The resurrected Jesus joins them on their journey, incognito, undercover. They don't know it's him. Luke tells the story in chapter 24, walking with Jesus but not perceiving Jesus. These disciples spill their disappointment and their sadness, their sorrow at the crucifixion of the one they thought and they hoped would redeem Israel. Jesus still conceals his identity. He chides them for their lack of perception. You're just looking at your circumstances They're unaware of God's Word. They're unaware of God's presence. The plan of God for His Messiah is spelled out in the Scripture. And guess what? It includes suffering and death before He enters His glory. This is what Jesus explains. The crisis of the cross is part of the plan of a loving God to save His lost ones. That's you and me. To reconcile us back to himself, take care of the problem that separates us, and embrace us back into his family. And as the Father's plan for his son, Jesus, includes no exemptions from pain, so his plan for us, his children, includes suffering and struggle. But always, under the shelter of our Father's loving gaze and Jesus' victorious presence. We are not alone, even if we don't recognize the loving presence of Jesus in our lives. Jacob's story has a wonderful ending. After 22 years of separation and grief, God allows Jacob to be reunited with the son he thought was dead. Joseph revealed himself to his brothers who'd come down to Egypt to buy grain. You remember these stories? Then he urged them to bring their father and their entire family group down to live with him under his protection and provision during the remaining five years of famine. What a sweet reunion that must have been. Scripture tells us when Joseph met his father Jacob, it says he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Genesis 46. God gave Jacob before he died 17 more years with Joseph. That's the same number of years he had with him before he lost him. Jacob savors goodness and lives in appreciation mode. In the first snapshot of Jacob, Back in chapter 37 of Genesis, we see him tasting grief and living in despair. But in the second snapshot of his life, in Genesis 48, 8-16, which happens to be the last day of his 148-year-old journey on earth, we see an entirely different man. Here, Jacob is blessing Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he's savoring the goodness of God and living in appreciation mode. Wow, it's a beautiful scene. In the presence of his favorite son, whom he thought was dead, and his two grandsons, Jacob has come to term with, come to terms with his grief, and he has finally perceived the love and grace of God in his life. And this is what he shares at this point. Genesis 48:11. And Israel, or Jacob, said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face." And behold, God, God has let me see your offspring also. Wow. In Savoring Goodness, Jacob focuses on the grace he's received from God, from God's hand. He says, God has shown me his love and goodness and gone overboard in his kindness to me. I had thought everything was lost and that I was abandoned by him. But now I realize that he had me in his heart the whole time. Though God allowed pain in Jacob's life for his purpose, he loved to surprise him and us with his kindness and generosity. To Job, God gave him 10 more children, doubled his portfolio. But though God may not make everything up to us in this life, we can be sure that he'll envelop us in his comfort and demonstrate his love to us in ways that we can perceive now and especially later romans 8 18 for i consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with what with the glory that is to be revealed to us hang on it's coming In the meantime, we can rest on the truth that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, Romans 8, 39. We're his children, and he loves us, and he is for us forever. Jacob eventually understood this, and I know it takes time. Instead of leaving a legacy of a spirit of bitterness and grief to his family, Jacob passes on a legacy of appreciation and blessing. Isn't that the way you and I want to end our lives? His life and his words, Jacob's life and his words become channels of encouragement to his posterity as he reflects on God. I love to hear his reflection. Genesis 48, 15, and 16. It says, and he blessed Joseph and said... The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. See, what is Jacob doing here that he didn't do before? He's acknowledging God as the God of his fathers, the God who connects with us and engages us, calls us to himself, loves us through our trials and our tests, and then reveals his glory on the pages of our story. Wow. And God's been doing this for a long time. He is really good at this. We can trust him. The the God who runs the universe wants to win our hearts with his grace and grow us up in his love. He wants us to enjoy the same intimacy with himself that all the greats and smalls of the faith have learned to enjoy. I love how Jacob acknowledges God as the shepherd of his life. The one who directs, the one who feeds, the one who protects, the one who loves his sheep, no matter how uncooperative or confused they may be. With the Lord as his shepherd, Jacob finally learns that scheming, lying, manipulating, posing to get what you want, that's a dead-end street. You can trust your life to the loving commitment of a good-hearted God to bring you through any possible difficulty. That's the message he passes on. And then Jacob acknowledges God as the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. I love that. This is profound. Who is the angel? I think it's the angel of the Lord. Who is that? That's pre-incarnate Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, engaged in Jacob's life. God didn't prevent evil from touching Jacob's life, whether it was others or his own, but he redeemed it. What does that mean? He brought good out of it. The Lord delivered Jacob from the power of evil in his own heart and from the grip of sin and all of its sorry fruit. And he turned his adversity into a testimony of grace and his pain into a ministry. That is so beautiful. If we allow God to turn our adversity into blessing, our pain becomes someone else's gain. This is what God does. We'll acknowledge how much we're hurting to him and then allow him to reveal his presence, his love, and his grace to us. I don't see it in the moment, but will you show me where you are and how much you love me? Most of us enter this church through the main doors, but a lot of us come in from the back. Not that we're special, but it's closer to where we like to sit. So we have the office entrance and we have the kids entrance. And if you come in from the south parking lot, you walk right by Cora's playground. Well, you may know who Cora is, but you probably, many of us, don't. Where's there, why is there a playground out here and why is it named Cora's playground? Well, let me explain. Cora was Joel and Jess McClanahan's firstborn daughter. She was born March the 5th, 2008, that's 15 years ago. Cora brought so much joy into her, Joel and Jess's lives and our lives. During the course of her early months, however, Cora was diagnosed with cancer and it just overtook her body and the Lord took her home at the tender age of 11 months. That is really early. It's so hard to lose a precious baby or a grandchild. It's got to rank up there with some of the worst and deepest pain and trauma a person can go through. But in the middle of this pain, it's amazing how the comfort and grace of God covered Joel and Jess. And now, and after that, used the story of their grief and their faith and their experience of God's grace to inspire hundreds and encouraged thousands of people via the internet and other media outlets. I asked Joel and Jess if I could share this story today. They said yes. So Joel and Jess, in their pain, experienced the presence and love of Jesus that enabled them to share a message that there is a God who though he allows trouble in our lives, delights to bring good through those troubles, more good than you and I can ever imagine. So Cora's playground is a tribute to a precious life of a little baby girl and the generous love and response that flowed following her death. That's why the playground is there. Does it still hurt that she's gone? Yes. Will we see her again? Yes. Do we have to bury our pain and disappointment? No. What Jesus wants us to do is present our anger, our bitterness, our fears, our disappointment, our confusion to him. Talk about it in his presence. Ask him to show us a love bigger than our misunderstandings and our pain. And when we do that, wow, it's incredible to watch as he sets us free, begins to heal our hearts this doesn't happen overnight but over time confusion will yield to an emerging reality that though the father our father doesn't keep us from troubles and dangers he's with us through them and in them he redeems us out of them he brings good he shapes us through them he shows us his love in them 2 weeks ago uh, pastor jack told a story of cory tenboom and he you, He told the story about her struggles to forgive her Nazi prison camp guards. Um, You've probably heard of The Hiding Place. That was the book she wrote and the movie that told that story. You might remember that Corey was a Dutch woman, and so she was in prison for aiding Jews during World War II. Well, anyway, she miraculously survived concentration camps but her dad and her sister died in those camps. So Corey would naturally ask, why would God allow that to happen? And when she, after the war was over, would speak to audiences about her terrible experiences in those camps, she would often look down while she was talking. And she wasn't like me, reading her notes. She was working on needlepoint, a piece of needlepoint. And after sharing about the doubt and anger and the pain that she'd experienced, Corey would hold up the needlepoint except she'd show everybody the bottom side. And all you could see was a jumble of colors and threads with no discernible pattern, and then she would say, this is how we see our lives. And then she'd turn that needlepoint over to reveal the design on the other side, and she would say, This is how God views your life. And someday we will have the privilege of seeing it from the same perspective. Isn't that sweet? Corey's suffering didn't make sense. It felt very unfair, but it was through that discussion of her suffering and God's grace and her response that God. Touched the heart of a young boy in Minneapolis and brought him to Christ. More than 30 years after the events of 1944, that boy grew up and became a pastor. His name, Mark Batterson, who wrote the book In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. And Mark says, I am the beneficiary of Corey Tenboom's unanswerable questions and unexplainable experiences. God will eventually connect the dots in our lives. But in the meantime, we have the privilege of letting Jesus be the voice that steers us through every situation. The peace that sets our hearts in trouble at rest. And the power that holds us up in the storm. He wants to be closer than the dearest friend and more faithful than any other person we've ever known. He gave his life to prove he loves us. He now wants us to live in that love which is freshly delivered day after day. See what kind of love the Father has for us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. If his eye is on the sparrow, believe me, he sees you and me. So this morning, if you're struggling with life, you don't know Jesus You can place your trust in Him right now as your Savior and Lord. Just acknowledge your need, your sin, your despair. And thank Jesus for dying for you to give you a brand new relationship with God. Thank Him for rising from the dead to conquer sin and death. Give you a hope that goes beyond this life and this life's disappointments. It leads us into the very presence of God Himself for all of eternity. And then join the rest of us on the adventure of discovering the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. And live with a Father, a good Father in heaven, who can do far more in our lives than we can imagine. For His glory, let's pray. Father, thank You for shepherding us in Your love and mercy. Thank You for being faithful and true, even in the adversity and the struggles of this life. You know what it's like. Jesus, you suffered for us, not because of anything you deserve, but because of all that we deserve. Thank you for bearing our judgment and our sin. Thank you for opening the door to a storehouse of grace that flows from your throne like a river every single moment of our lives. And for my brothers and sisters who may be here, we all know what it's like when it doesn't feel true that God loves me, that Jesus is with me. I pray that you'd open our hearts to see what you see when you want us to see it. And until that day, if we're still looking at the bottom side of the needle point, give us the grace to say, I know you're doing something, I don't see it, but I trust you. Help me perceive your love in the interim thank you for caring for us in Jesus name amen Amen. thank you so much for being here today our mission is to love God, love people and lead others to do the same and because of that we are his church and let's go be his church in the world grace we are sent God bless you